Emily, do you think people have forgotten who we are? Blummin' hope not. We're the voices of CDR. (laughs) (laughs) But you're right, we've been away for a while. We have been away for a while. Feels like we've removed ourselves from the equation. No pun intended. Well, I mean, not very permanently, though, because we've not even been away a year. That's true. If you were carbon that had been removed, Tom, what method do you think would have been used to remove you from the atmosphere? (laughs) I would say I'm soil carbon. I'm some soil carbon sequestration. Why is that? Because I'm back. (laughs) That's probably who I'd be. What what about you? I reckon I'd be like some kind of deep sea carbon removal because people don't know much about me. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm a bit salty sometimes. (laughs) Brilliant. (sighs) Should we get into it? Let's do it. Hello and welcome to the Carbon Removal Show. I'm Tom Praviti. And I'm Emily Swaddle. Season three, Tom, here we are. I know, season three. Yeah, we've been away for a while. We have indeed been away from your ear holes for a whole year. And a lot's changed in the world of carbon removal. And I, for one, am very excited to be back and to share some of what's been going on with all of you. Yes, what a treat it is to be back in your ears. We have been away from the mics for a while, but we haven't been out of the game, Emily. We've been following the growth of the industry every step of the way, and over the next few episodes, we're going to be tackling some new topics, revisiting old themes, and taking the temperature of carbon removal today. Spoiler alert, things are heating up. That's right. CDR is hotting up so that planet Earth can cool down. Yes, moving away from the puns and into witty wordplay now, I see. It's all witty wordplay, Tom. That's what we're here for. (laughs) In seasons one and two, we gave you the lowdown on what carbon dioxide removal is, why it's important, and how we do it. If you're new here or you need a bit of a reminder of any of that, do go back and take a listen. We'll still be here when you're done. And if we've learned anything over the past few years on this show... It's that we need CDR, and we need it on a much bigger scale than we currently have it. So season three is going to focus on the question of how do we get there. We've spoken a little bit about scaling up before, but over the coming episodes, we're going to be diving deep into the challenges and opportunities of growing the carbon removal landscape. As a regular listener to this show, you might be forgiven for thinking that CDR is a booming megabucks taking over the world industry. Well, it's not. Not yet. Have you not got a yacht yet, Emily? <laughs> it's in the post. I, I ordered it. <laughs> yeah, well, not yet, possibly, but definitely watch this space. If we're going to be talking about scaling up, we need to know where we're starting from. So, real talk. Tom, how much carbon is currently being removed from the atmosphere per year? On purpose, I mean, like in addition to the carbon removal that happens au naturel in the carbon cycles. Well... According to the State of Carbon Dioxide Removal 2023, which is a report put together by the University of Oxford and a whole bunch of top international researchers, every year human activity helps remove roughly 2 billion tonnes of CO2. That's 2 gigatons. Yep. It is worth mentioning that it's actually really tricky to measure exactly how much CDR humans are responsible for. And we don't have time to get into all of that complexity today, but go and take a look at the State of CDR report for more details. It is a thoroughly interesting read. But I mean, we're already at the gigaton scale that we hear so much about, so that sounds like great news. Don't get too excited, Emily, because those two gigatons aren't all they seem. 
Ah, I see. Two gigatons of carbon removed doesn't necessarily mean that it's securely stored for any significant length of time. So what are we aiming for when we're talking about scaling up? Well, that all depends on how much we manage to reduce emissions in the coming years. But again, going back to the state of CDR report, we're going to be needing to remove in the region of anywhere from 5 to 10 gigatons per year by 2050 if we want to keep global temperatures in line with the Paris Agreement. For some context, in 2021, as a planet, we collectively emitted about 40 gigatons of CO2. So with scale on our minds, we wanted to understand what the industry needs in order to get closer to this gigaton goal, and specifically, you know, what different stakeholders are asking for. Our curiosity took us to Basel, Switzerland back in April this year for a conference hosted by Carbon Future. It was top quality mingling, a true who's who of European CDR. Everyone from EU policymakers setting the EU's net zero target, to institutional buyers, to carbon removal projects. The event was designed on the themes of trust and collaboration, bringing together stakeholders from across the industry to celebrate what's been done so far, assess where we are, and understand how we can collectively move forward. Carbon Future is perhaps in the perfect position to bring all these actors together, given that they offer both MRV services, that's monitoring, reporting and verification, just in case you needed reminding, and act as a marketplace for durable carbon removal credits. While the various speakers touched on many different themes, all roads ultimately led to scaling up. And the big question of scaling up quickly got more specific thanks to your earlier point on durability, Emily. Based on the data from the state of CDR report, the two gigatons of CO2 currently being removed annually is almost entirely made up of so-called conventional management of land. That's things like afforestation or reforestation. Yeah, I remember the graphic from the report that was shown on the screen at the event. It's a bar chart that breaks down the two gigatons. It sort of went the full width of the screen, mostly in one colour, and then right at the end, a tiny little sliver. Let's be honest, it was just a line, really, that was in a different colour. And that little line represents removals from what the report calls novel CDR. So that's BEX, Biochar, DAC, stuff like that. Exactly. And this is why the scaling up chat had to get specific. As we've already addressed many times in this podcast, while the conventional land-based approaches have many benefits, they also have drawbacks. Notably, they're generally less durable than novel or more tech-based approaches, and they also tend to require significant resources, particularly land. And this limits the degree to which they can be massively and rapidly scaled up. It's understandable, then, that many in the industry are particularly interested in scaling up these novel approaches right now, and this event was no exception. Mm. In the past, when we've talked about scaling up, we've talked about a portfolio approach and the importance of that. But in the context of this event and today's episode, when we say scaling up, we're really talking about scaling up novel approaches. And it makes sense, you know, they're starting from a much lower bar, and I can really see how solutions like DAC, for instance, where the technology is just getting better and better, there's the potential that that scale-up could be exponential compared to more nature-based solutions. Precisely. We were lucky enough to grab one of the conveners of the State of CDR report, Dr. Jan Minx, after we'd seen him speak on stage at the event. Jan is head of the MCC Working Group Applied Sustainability Science. He's also a visiting professor for climate change and public policy at the Priestley International Centre for Climate at the University of Leeds, as well as contributing to the recent work of the IPCC. 
He's a busy man. We started by asking about some of the graphs that he shared in his presentation, which showed the steep growth curves needed for technologies like DAC and biochar if we're going to hit the levels needed by 2050. We saw, for example, for direct air capture, to hit those 2050 marks on the slide, you would need continuous growth of at about 50% per year. Mm. And as I highlighted before, that's faster than most of the technologies across the board that we've seen so far. The sort of overall picture is really drastically showing the amount of scaling up that has to happen. And there are obviously barriers that we talk about in terms of what gets in the way of that scaling up. What are some of the things that seem most important to you and maybe even some of the things that people aren't talking about as much? I mean, at the moment, the biggest is policy, right? Mm. So we don't have a lot of policy action going on. This is currently changing. But I think unless you have really a demand pull, those technologies will not pull off. So I think that's the single most important one. But there are various scarce resources involved, biomass, land, also geological storage space. And there, of course, we need to recognize that those various CDR methods are competing on the one hand, but also they are competing with other conventional mitigation technologies. We'll be hearing from Jan again later on in this episode with some of the policy mechanisms he thinks might help the space grow. The idea that all these CDR methods, which in reality means individual companies, are currently competing, it was quite striking for me in this context. They're competing for resources with other CDR methods and mitigation stuff, as Jan mentioned. But because the CDR space is still relatively small, companies are also competing for funding, buyers, and attention, which makes it all the more impressive that they're so keen on gathering together in one room. And honestly, what a relief that they are. Mm. I was struck by how many quote-unquote competitors were in attendance. For example, we had multiple biochar producers at the event. We had multiple marketplaces too. It was refreshing, I would say, to have them sharing the same room and even the same stage in some instances. As Hannes Jünginger, co-founder and CEO of Carbon Future, pointed out, events like these are vital to help the space develop. In particular, they can be a useful first step in building trust and hearing from different stakeholders. In the carbon removal industry, we are at a very exciting moment at this time, right? We are getting ready to scale up the industry from a very early stage setup in the last three years with a lot of innovation and individual entrepreneurs into a situation where we have policymakers, we have investors, we have the general public and science coming together and starting with a consistent narrative to talk about carbon removal. And so we thought it would be amazing to bring together all these innovative and influential voices in the industry, specifically in Europe, but also in the US, to gather a whole day and learn from each other and really start and spark new collaborations and start this scaling up the industry from a new level. And we from Carbon Future, as a platform that is operating industry-wide with our MRV system and also with our trading system, we are anyway kind of at the center of these actors, so we wanted to bring them together in one place. In that position, what challenges do you see for people across the industry that you hope today is going to help to solve? There are various challenges. So what we are trying to solve is really helping to agree to common standards and to processes that can make the actions transparent and auditable and really infuse trust in the whole value chains in order to 
to make this industry scalable. Because without trust, you don't get financing. And in the end, you also can't justify that the action you are claiming that you have done is actually being done and not claimed elsewhere as well, this double counting, double claiming. So that is one thing why we think we are providing a valuable tool to the industry where people and actors in this industry can interact on our platform and provide data and transparency into their activity that makes collaboration possible because you can't do it alone. Mm. You've talked about trust and I do totally understand the importance of that in this growing industry. Do you think there's something about like physically coming together and meeting people face to face? Do you think there's something to that that actually helps build that trust that's integral to the industry? Yes, I think so. I mean, we are humans. We want to relate to other humans. We want to feel part of a group. And in addition to these governance aspects of trust and the contractual aspects of trust and the controls and the transparency we bring in and the effective digital systems, we really need to engage and relate to other humans who are leaders in creating this industry. And and we really believe in their integrity, right? in their motivation. Why are they doing what they are doing? And it's very important to be certain to work with people who are aligned with your values. And then this gives energy and this motivates people to work with us in this industry. It sounds really lovely to have everyone coming together, collaborating, teamwork. I love it. But the reality is, in the voluntary market that CDR is currently functioning as, buyers actually hold a lot of power in their hands. Without buyers, there is no CDR. And events like this one enable conversations between buyers and others to make sure that they can buy, buy, buy. Buy, 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 buy. So what do buyers actually need? The voluntary carbon market or VCM, because, you know, we've got to initialize everything, is currently the motor beneath the carbon removal industry. This means that businesses buying carbon removal credits do so voluntarily, rather than being obligated through any kind of regulation. Regulatory frameworks for CDR are being developed, and we'll touch on this in a minute, but for now, it's all about the VCM. In this context, it's so clear to see why keeping buyers happy is very important. Interestingly, buyers themselves are often underrepresented at these kinds of events and in the conversation more broadly. So it was a great opportunity to get some perspectives. Why are they buying or wanting to buy removal and what challenges are they facing in doing so? We spoke to Ben Brandt, co-founder and CPO at Leggy. We're a software company based in Switzerland, UK and Germany that does a software as a service to help companies give equity to their teams, so equity management for especially international scaling companies. In terms of looking at your own climate impact as a company, how did you understand the need for carbon removal in your climate strategy? So we started kind of from our own emissions and measuring them, understanding them, and of course you have to reduce first, right? But then some things, especially as a software company, are hard to reduce. So a lot of scope three, some travel offsites. And basically we have introduced an internal carbon price of 150 euros per ton. Then the question was, for what? Like use that budget for other offsets, which you can buy for a few dozen euro already. Then I started looking into the quality of those and thinking about if that makes sense or what alternatives there are. And came to the conclusion that the space is still quite early and there are a lot of low quality credits out there. So by just purchasing these low quality credits to claim we're carbon neutral is not really making a big difference. So more thinking about, okay, how can we help that space grow using the budget from this internal carbon price for 
contribution in, instead of compensation. So basically supporting other early stage efforts to mature, even though the price is still very high and we are not removing our tons of carbon that we emit directly. But we think with this long term, we can have a bigger impact on carbon removal and we can remove a lot more long term by helping these smaller companies or smaller efforts at the beginning. You guys are not a Microsoft, you're not a, yeah. a Stripe in terms of the scale and the budgets that are available. So I yeah. guess where's the inspiration come from to have this impact, to have the outsized impact that you're looking to do? Even if you have smaller budgets, it's important to realize that there are things where you can have an outsized impact if you select the right things. So. It's the same in philanthropy, for example, where compared to government budgets, it's not that big. But if you invest into neglected things or in very early stage research, this is where, you know, a euro can make a big difference. So that, that was kind of the thinking of like, we don't have to wait until we're big. Everyone should do it. So we should also do it. And then that basically got us started on that journey to think about how to do it. I love the idea of contribution rather than compensation. This chat with Ben really reminded me of our wonderful conversation with Will from Allardade in season two. Hi, Will, if you're listening. Hi, Will. The attitude that Ben and Will share, the sort of philanthropic mindset of contributing to the growth of this industry through company policy and internal carbon pricing, is an essential part of the VCM, particularly when it comes to the pricier methods of CDR. It just shows that even if you're a small business, you can still have catalytic impact in this space. And Leggy are well set up for this. As Ben said, they can tackle the low-hanging fruit of emissions reductions, and then their money can actually be more impactfully directed towards supporting the growth of CDR. But of course, these companies aren't just closing their eyes and handing over their money. They're doing their homework. They have questions so that they can put their trust in these solutions and the potential of this industry. We spoke with a handful of buyers ranging from publicly listed companies all the way down to early stage tech startups. All of them truly believe that carbon removal is going to be a big part of the solution. And many are keen to get involved today, but point out key concerns around things like bringing greater transparency to the market. Buyers really have lots of questions and it's very hard for them to get immediate answers. Other concerns that were raised on multiple occasions were around prices being too high and this idea that you have to purchase into the future where you won't see that carbon being removed until three or five years from now. And you know, it's worth noting that companies attending this kind of event are enthusiasts. They have questions, yes, but they're already on board to some degree. So when we think of scaling up, the levels of trust to get other companies involved businesses that are perhaps less eager to support this industry, we're going to have to be amped up pretty significantly. So when we're talking about trust, what are we actually talking about? Let's break this down. Hmm. Well, Emily, I trust you implicitly. Oh, Tom, you're too kind. (laughs) (laughs) But I actually think you've hit on something there. Like, you trust me because we know each other, we've been working together for a while now, we're pals... And that's a point that Hannah's made earlier, that bringing people together at events like this can be a great first step. But carbon removal does seem to have a bit of a trust problem right now. For starters, it's a novel and growing industry with lots of new players, technologies, terminology. I mean, we've been in this space for three years now and I still don't feel like I've got all the answers. Speak for yourself, Emily. But no, you are right. And that's obviously a big factor for potential buyers many of whom won't be in the room for events like this. Plus, when you're considering buying carbon removal, you're essentially purchasing something you can't see. 
With that in mind, you really need to find a way to trust the quality of the product and to trust that due diligence is happening at every stage along the chain. Few potential buyers are going to have the expertise, never mind the access or time to do that for themselves. Yeah. So MRV is obviously a big part of this, right? Ah, you mean moving, removing and vanquishing. (laughs) Otherwise known as monitoring or measuring the carbon removed reporting that data and verifying it according to established standards and protocols. Thanks, Tom. It's really the backbone of credibility in the carbon removal space. Without robust MRV systems, it's hard for us to trust that the carbon removal projects are actually doing what they claim. And I know we're going to be diving deeper into MRV at a later date because it's so important. And we hear that a lot of you listeners have big questions about it. I do too. Yes, I'm very much looking forward to that. But I think the question of trust runs even deeper. After all, the best MRV in the world is useless if potential buyers don't understand it or believe that it's credible. Like carbon removal itself, MRV relies on technologies that the layperson is unlikely to understand. And there are a lot of companies out there with different visions for what good MRV looks like. There are also big questions around who should be responsible for MRV in the first place. We've seen instances where MRV has fallen short in the past, which highlights the need for it not only to function effectively, but also to be visibly effective and transparent so that people trust it. Transparency was a big word we kept hearing again and again in Basel. When organisations are open about their processes and data, it not only builds trust, but it also invites collaboration and improvement. It's a way to show the industry and the wider world that they have nothing to hide and that they're committed to making a positive impact. And Adam Sipthorpe from Carbon Finance Consultancy South Pole actually pointed out that acknowledging that things aren't perfect is a good place to start. Do you feel like you've had questions answered, challenges solved, big ideas realised today? I don't know if the market is in a place yet to have the questions answered. I think we need to wait for the science, we need to wait for the policy on that. What I thought was really interesting is both on the policy side and the market side, there's kind of a acknowledgement that, you know, it's not perfect today, but we need to start. And I think that's the key message I'm taking away. Companies are ready to start now and they're ready to be honest with what they're purchasing, honest with what they're buying, which is exactly what we need in this space and honest with how they use any commitments or investments in this space as well. You know, Adam reminded me that buyer motivation is a big part of this, which also ties in with Ben Brandt's point from earlier. If buyers are motivated by impact, rather than just slapping some sort of carbon neutral label on their product, they're going to make more meaningful and informed purchasing decisions when it comes to CDR. And that in turn puts pressure on the markets to improve its standards across the board. 100%. And it's obviously a work in progress. Paolo Pifaretti from CarbonX identified where some of the gaps currently lie. I think today the carbon markets are heavily fragmented. There's still no clear standards. Of course, the European Commission came up with their own framework or regulatory framework with the UCRCF, but it's still very foggy. And so having events where we can kind of provide a bit more clarity around the topic, what are the main carbon quality drivers, as we call them, what are future standards, what are corporate's expectation as well is, is extremely important. And so... In those specific events, we have an opportunity to discuss this in a live format and get uncut uh, information. What's interesting is that these are both perspectives from sellers of carbon removal. 
They'll have had countless conversations with buyers and the carbon removal producers, so they're going to be acutely aware of the challenges that both of these sides face when it comes to producing and purchasing CDR. Yeah, it really feels like everyone wants things to improve and is asking for more clarity, and that's a good sign. We heard plenty of different perspectives on the day with different takes on what this might look like, but everyone we spoke to was pretty clear that trust and transparency are going to be key drivers in scaling up carbon removal over the coming years. Another thing that nearly every single person we spoke to mentioned was the role that policy might play in building that trust and scaling up the industry more broadly. Yep, and something that stuck with me was the many different ways in which people see this happening. As you say, Tom, within the voluntary carbon market, clear standards are obviously really key to establishing that trust and predictability that buyers are looking for. But there are also questions of incentives and subsidies, how CDR factors into nationally determined contributions under the Paris Agreement, and so on. Right, and we could talk about this until the cows come home, and we'd still only scratch the surface. With this in mind, though, we asked Sebastian Manhart, Senior Policy Advisor at Carbon Future, to give us some headlines about the current state of play in the EU specifically and what the challenges and opportunities are. What does the EU policy landscape for CDR currently look like, if you could describe it in a nutshell? So I think at the very high level, we've got a net zero commitment by 2050. And that net zero commitment requires significant CDR, as we all know. But the net zero commitment was made without a consideration for CDR a while back. And so now what you see is that all the different pieces of legislation that move us towards net zero need to be adjusted to include CDR. And that's where we're currently at, is basically defining that building block which is the CRCF, the Carbon Removal Certification Framework, that can then be slotted into much bigger pieces of regulation that currently do not mention CDR. Just to give us a sense of timelines, like how frequently does this stuff develop and change? It is definitely slower than the voluntary market. I would say that on average, a piece of legislation will take two to five years to come into force. For the CRCF that we're definitely looking at now, we can be hopeful that by you know end of 2024, hopefully something will be in force. We will also see, I think, the major revamp of the EU ETS, the Emission Training Scheme, which will have a huge impact. That is set to be reviewed in 2026, but it wouldn't come into force until probably 2030. So yeah, we're talking about longer timeframes. But the impact that it's going to have if, for example, carbon dioxide removal gets into the EU ETS, it would be a complete game changer. And beyond just the time it takes for this legislation to come through, what are the other big challenges that are facing the policymakers, but also the carbon removal projects themselves? I think on the policy side, a big, big challenge is everything that gets mixed up with carbon removal like point source, carbon capture and storage. That's a huge one that gets constantly mixed up. Another one, even within CDR, we're seeing a lot of blurring of the lines between you know, carbon farming or shorter duration carbon removal and more durable, longer term carbon removal. So we're seeing quite a lot of challenges there that I think we just need to hash out where exactly the differences lie. And for the suppliers, the biggest challenge is access to finance. And a lot of these credits are very promising tool to potentially finance some of the early higher capex. But we're just seeing suppliers that cannot finance the initial costs of their projects. And that's where a lot of projects, frankly, die on the starting lines. So I think access to finance is still not where it should be. And policy could play a role, but especially in Europe, that's not really where policy goes. That's much more the American way. So in Europe, we see a big challenge around that. I was really struck talking to Sebastian by the kind of slow pace at which policy seems to be moving. 
We obviously see this at play all the time, but when we're talking about an industry that has changed almost beyond recognition in the three years that we've been doing this podcast, it feels like it's just going to be a really big challenge for policy to keep pace. Yeah, totally. And to remain flexible enough to adapt to that changing landscape. Listening to some of the talks on stage during the event, I was also reminded how unique carbon removal is as an industry and a suite of technologies, and how this might present completely new challenges to policymakers. Obviously, that's another good reason to have events like this, where people can explore the nuances and consider these challenges. But it also feels like it's going to call for some serious creativity and out-of-the-box thinking. I asked Jan Minx, who we heard from earlier, to indulge my desire for creative thinking. What do you reckon is the most drastic but also feasible thing that policies could put in place right now? I'm, I'm never a friend of, you know, the one drastic thing. Yeah. I think there are lots of important changes that need to happen. So now we are looking at the next set of NDCs at the international level. So the next official set of country pledges. I think it's important that we explicitly report removals, that we can distinguish emission reductions from removals and that we have a transparent reporting. I think we really need to push for that within the climate convention. We have heard already during the panel discussion today what's happening in Europe with 2040, but also in the short term with the certification framework. There are lots of important questions to be resolved in terms of more durable or permanent versus less permanent CDR methods. And I think here there are very important institutional questions when we think about integrating, for example, this into carbon markets like the UETS. If we wanted to integrate for example, non-permanent removals, maybe an option would be that we would have something like a, a carbon central bank that would actually buy non-permanent removal and would take care that they are always refreshed and give out permanent ones. So buying non-permanent ones, but giving out permanent, of course, not at the buying price, right? That's the important thing. And then we will actually realize that even the less permanent options are actually not that cheap because mm. then they will be priced at our expectations for permanent removal in the future. And that really, I think, would also be important because, you know, we have a problem with low quality offset markets. And so something like that, you know, are things that we could consider. But it's a, this, I would say that's a radical idea. But I think it's one we should really think about. Such an interesting idea, this one. Mm. The question of how to reconcile credits with vastly different levels of durability is obviously a huge challenge. And I, for one, really appreciated hearing an innovative suggestion to tackle the problem. Yeah, totally. Obviously, we weren't going to come away with like all the big answers to all of the policy challenges. But I certainly think that we have a slightly better sense of the questions. And I feel that my appetite has certainly been whetted to dive into this in the future. Such a tease, Emily. <laughs> Having come away from that event and reflecting on all of the key challenges around scaling up, Emily, you, you had quite a nice way that you put it in, in a sort of flow diagram. Yes, the visual aid of a flow diagram is going to work great in our audio podcast. <laughs> but we're going to try. This is how I see it. So in order to scale up, we need more people buying CDR. So we need orders of magnitude more buyers. And in order for those buyers to feel comfortable doing that, we need transparency. And in order to get that, we need these standards, we need the MRV. And in order to get that, we probably need good policy and regulation on this. 
this is how my flow diagram's going. A virtuous loop, <laughs> some would say. Well, you know, it's it's nice to like have a plan. I feel like that's what CDR needs right now is a bit of a plan. Mm. We've got a lot to think about following our little trip to Basel. Wonderful little trip that it was. It's given us a lot of food for thought. I had a great time. And I was also particularly pleased to receive an email a little while after the event confirming that Carbon Future had purchased durable carbon removal credits to offset ours and our fellow attendees' emissions associated with the trip. We'll put the full details about this in the show notes because it's a great practice and I, for one, really appreciated it. Yeah, same here. It really did help to make our time in Basel all the sweeter, I would say. That and the extremely large pizzas that we had on our second evening. I think also maybe on our third morning, those pizzas lasted forever. (laughs) Yeah, my stomach's still recovering. (laughs) But thank you so much to Carbon Future for covering our attendance and travel costs so that we could be at the event. And we certainly got a lot out of it. Thanks, Carbon Future. So over the coming episodes, we're going to be exploring some of the themes that we've touched on here in a little more detail, all guided by that question of how to scale up. Yes. And I keep thinking of those steep growth curves we mentioned at the start of this episode, the ones Jan Minks presented and that you can find in the State of CDR report. I know that this is a podcast, so we can't actually show them to you, but as a visual, they really do help to emphasise the challenge ahead. So next time we'll be asking, have other industries achieved this sort of scale up before? And what can we learn from them? Can't wait. thank you to everyone who makes this show possible our researcher and fact checker henry irvine our graphic designer reke campbell our composer sam carter our producer ben weaver hinks and our executive producer sam floy i've been emily swaddle and i've been tom praviti thank you so much for listening if we could ask you to do two favors please hit that subscribe or follow button wherever you're listening and give us a rating it really helps And if you enjoyed this episode or learned something new, please do us this favor and share it with a friend or a colleague. You can find us online at thecarbonremovalshow.com. We're on LinkedIn as The Carbon Removal Show. And we're on Twitter or X as Restored CC. See you next time.